Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast his staff down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile shall stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch it out, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of the servants he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their sacred arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed before the Lord had struck the Nile, after the Lord had struck the Nile. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and ask that unlike Pharaoh, that you would work in our hearts and that we would, in fact, respond to your word and that we would know life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you go through difficulty, if you go through trial, if you go through trouble, if you go through disaster and difficulty, who do you call on? Do you call on the one true God who is the Almighty God, or do you call on a lesser God? The 1980s movie, Children of a Lesser God, had as one of the main characters a teacher in a school for the deaf who fell in love with a uh, janitor uh, who was deaf in the school. And I suppose the title means to convey that if somebody is deaf or has a disability, 
that it's a reflection on the God who created them, that they are the product of a lesser God, a less able God. Now, I don't think that's actually the, the point of the movie. I think they were looking for a catchy title. It came from an Alfred Lord Tennyson poem. But that sentiment is exactly the sentiment that Pharaoh had. That's the sentiment that the Egyptians had. Their belief was that the God of the Israelites must be a lesser God. Because after all, what God, if he were able, would allow his people, his children, to be enslaved? And in fact, Pharaoh knew that the God of Egypt, the gods of Egypt, must be far more effective and powerful than than Yahweh, the God of Israel, because they enslaved the Israelites. That was the thinking. Now, you'll recall many months ago when we looked at the passage where uh, Moses first went in and spoke to Pharaoh, he said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response was, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, there's a very good chance that Pharaoh actually knew the name Yahweh. He actually knew the name of Israel's God. But what he was saying is, who is this God of no account to me? I'm not going to obey him. Why would I obey him? And so he was saying, you are children of a lesser God. Remember last week when we uh, looked at the text, God said to Moses, the Egyptians are about to know me. They're about to get to know me. They're going to know me through my mighty acts, and they're going to know me through the disaster and the judgments that I'm going to bring upon them. They're going to know that I, in fact, am the greater God. Now, a little clarification here. We know that, of course, there is only one true God, right? And so you're probably thinking, well, how does this apply to me? I mean, I'm not like an Egyptian or maybe somebody from another culture that is tempted to uh, worship a, a false god or an idol. I know there's only one God. Sure, I might have struggles in, in trusting the true almighty God, but I certainly wouldn't trust in another God instead of him. And the reality is, as John Calvin famously has said, that the human heart, is an idol factory. And in fact, we are very tempted to put our reliance on a lesser God than the one true God. And so the message to Pharaoh is a message to us. And it's a message of encouragement to us that in fact, we are children of the greater God. Now, the first way that God sends the message to Pharaoh is through uh, a sign through uh, the sign of the serpent. Now, the serpent was a very potent symbol in Egypt. The, the serpent conveyed power and authority. More on that in a minute, but just on sort of the idea of symbols uh, and signs. And we, we have them, you know, this is, we just finished the, the, the bowl season, right? And we have uh, football teams, and football teams have mascots. And mascots are meant to convey power and might. You have the Florida State Seminoles and the Florida Gators and the Georgia Bulldogs and the Texas Longhorns. 
Right, I see uh, the Clemson Tigers, right? Okay, they deserve to get a little credit here uh, for all they've done. Uh, perhaps you saw the Sugar Bowl. I don't know if you saw the beginning of the Sugar Bowl on January 1st. You, you, some of you know what I'm talking about. You had the, the two mascots of the two teams were in pens side by side before the game. Uh, the Texas Longhorns with this massive 1,700-pound hulking beast with, you know, 10-foot horns was right next to an enclosure of Ugga, the bulldog, in his cute little jersey uh, right next to him. And uh, what happened was, before the game started, this massive longhorn broke through the barrier and started to chase Ugga. And uh, wisely, Ugga and his handler uh, left and hightailed it out of there. Now, that was a bad omen because Texas won. The mascot, the longhorn mascot, was stronger than the bulldog mascot. We have a little bit of that going on here in our text. All right, so we, here, let's look at the text again, starting with chapter 7, verse 9. When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servant, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, they, the magicians, also did the same secret arts with their secret arts, for each man cast down his staff, but what happened? They became ser serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed their staff. Now, what would the significance have been to the Egyptians watching this take place? The serpent uh, was, I said, as I said, a potent symbol. You know, the the um, Egyptian pharaohs have what on their headdress? They have a, a cobra on the headdress, right? They have a serpent. Uh, and that fact, if you look at um, some of the depictions of their gods, they would have a serpent. A number of their gods would have a serpent on their headdress. And it symbolized power and it symbolized authority, right? And so I sort of, I want you to imagine this. It would be kind of like this. Let's say Florida State and Florida play down in the swamp. And uh, the Florida State Seminole goes to the, the, the middle of the field before the game and throws down the spear. Not such an unusual thing, but the spear turns into this gigantic live alligator. And off to the side are a couple of real live Florida gator gators that they're mascots. And the Seminole Gator goes over there and swallows both of their gators whole before the game. A bad omen, right? Not a good thing if you're, if you're rooting for the Gators. And this is exactly what's going on here. So Moses, God turns the staff into a serpent, the sign of power and authority in Egypt. They say, we'll do you one better, and they turn theirs into a serpent. God's serpents devour their serpents. Interestingly enough, the word for devour there is also the word that is used after uh, the exodus as they go through the Red Sea and the water swallows up the Egyptians. So there's a defeat of the symbol of power uh, and the symbol of authority by God. But Pharaoh 
pays no attention. Another interesting thing is it was in that day the belief that if you're a magician, if you're particular person associated with your god or your gods uh, perform something greater than somebody else's, then your god must be greater. And so again, Moses and Aaron's uh, symbol of power is greater than the magicians of Egypt. We wrestle with idolatry. We wrestle with the temptation to put our faith in something that will give us life, that will give us sustenance. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to me essential, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time and attention, my energy, and my money. So what are you tempted to worship as an idol? As I mentioned, another way of thinking about idolatry is we're tempted to make an idol of that which sustains us, that which God gives to us to help us in this life. We're tempted to turn into an idol the gift of God rather than worshiping God himself. And that is, in fact, what uh, people do all over the world. That's what the Egyptians did. And that's what we have in our text here. And we find that God comes in and defeats the Egyptians at the point of their idolatry. And that is the Nile River. The Nile River in Egypt, called the River of Life by the uh, Egyptians, it cuts through this arid portion of the world, and uh, if the Nile had, was not there, it would be a howling wasteland, an arid, barren land, and uh, instead, because of the Nile, it's not only able to sustain life, it's, it's abundant, and particularly what happens annually is you have what's called the inundation, the, the Nile River floods its banks, and this rich black silt goes over the land in the, uh, the, the Nile Delta and, and over the banks, and it provides this absolutely wonderful farmland. And the Egyptians benefited greatly from it, and they deified it. They called it a god. Not only the Nile, but particularly the inundation was called the god Hopi. In fact, they sang hymns to Hopi. Hail to your countenance, Hopi, who goes up from the land, who comes to deliver Egypt, who brings food, who is abundant of provisions, who creates every sort of good things, who is enduring of customs, who returns at his due season, who fills upper and lower Egypt. Everything that has come into being is through his power. There is not, there is not district of living men without him. Such was their deification, their idolatry of the Nile. This brought them sustenance, and they worshiped the creation rather than the creator. And so God says, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's coming out to the water and stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent 
And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this time you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink from water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Got it? God is striking the Egyptians at the heart of what they put their reliance on. They say, we have the greater God. No. God is the greater God. Yahweh. And then we read, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. Now, it's interesting, when you look at the first miracle and the response of the Egyptian magicians and here the water turning to blood. The question is, uh, was this an actual uh, demonic miracle that happened by these Egyptian magicians or is it sleight of hand? Did they do something that just appeared to be uh, real but wasn't real? I remember the uh, professor I had in seminary who was a missions professor who had worked in Africa And he said it was his experience that the witch doctors in Africa uh, would do harm through uh, their demonic curses. And if that didn't work, they would take matters into their hands physically and see that they would harm people. So we don't know. There are demonic powers. uh, What exactly took place? But we know this, that the power of God was demonstrated in a greater way than the power of of the magicians because you had all over the land the water turned to blood. Not just the Nile, it said in their water bowls, their wooden and their stone bowls. What you had is the equivalent of hot and cold running blood throughout Egypt. And it was, the Egyptians were in dire consequences. We can deify and worship just like the Egyptians those things that God has given to us to sustain us. We can go to the direct route of worshiping, say, money. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3 that money can be an idol. We can turn it into an idol. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and money. In the, uh, the Ministry Faith Financial Works Company, 
Um, there, was a, there was an article that says, three signs money has become an idol. This was sort of a personal testimony from somebody who said, I used to think only rich people could be obsessed with money, but boy, I was wrong. I was actually more than $30,000 in debt when I was most obsessed with money. And he goes on to say that these are the three signs, at least for him, that he was obsessed with money and it had become an idol. Number one, it's constantly on your mind. Number two, your loved ones are increasingly frustrated with your money talk. Number three, you have a destination mindset. Do you do the following, do the following thoughts sound familiar? If I can just get out of debt, I'll be happy. Once we have a fully, flat, fully funded emergency savings, I'll relax. When I finally get that raise, everything will be perfect. If only I have fill in the blank. So we can put our faith in God's gifts and the things that he gives us to sustain us rather than God himself as our sustainer. You can put your faith in the U.S. government. You can put your faith in your bank account, in the stock market. You can put your faith in a home or a building or a job. You can put your faith in those things that are the economic powerhouses of our area, the beach and its ability to attract tourists, a military base, a shipbuilding company, a hospital. And we can tell when something is an idol in our lives by what happens when we lose it, what happens when it's threatened, when you have a financial downturn in your life, when you lose money from the hurricane, when you lose your job, when the stock market takes a precipitous dive, how do you respond? Now let me be clear, I'm not saying that we should be irresponsible with money. Money is in fact a gift from God, it is a blessing from God, and in fact we need to be thankful, understanding that the source of everything, every good and perfect gift is God himself. And so we shouldn't ignore it. We should be grateful for it and thankful for it. And we should be wise stewards of what God has given to us. But when we lose those things that God has given to us, that he's given to sustain us, we find out whether we are in fact relying on God Almighty or whether we are relying on the gifts that God gives to us and seeing them as the power, the idol as something in my life that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. You know, we have our hymns as well. I think of the Beatles song. It was a cover of somebody else. The best things in life are free, but you, can't, you can keep them for the birds and the bees. Now give me money. That's what I want. That's what I want, right? Some of you know that song, and many others like it. We have our hymns to money as well. And we can turn opportunities for a regular paycheck into an idol. You know, there's something about regularity in terms of the things that God gives us to sustain us that are tempting to turn into an idol. And what I mean by that is even the Egyptian inundation, you'll notice in that hymn to the God of inundation, there was a praise for the regularity that this would happen. And even today in Egypt... Uh, they have a two-week celebration for the inundation that happens of the Nile. And so things that happen time and time and time again, we have a God of 
order, not disorder. And so God is gracious and will often give us the things that we need in regularity. But that's where the people would worship the sun and the moon as it came in regularity, worship the Nile and its regular inundation, worship of uh, Baal in the Old Testament. Some of you Bible students are familiar with Baal worship. was all about the cycles of fertility and bringing about rain in its proper time. And so the idea was that if, if the rain was a little delayed, you could, you could appeal to Baal, you could worship such that Baal would produce. See, there's something about the, um, the appeal of an idol that somehow I can get that idol to do what I want it to do, that I can manipulate it. And yet the true God of the Bible is unmanipulatable. I don't know if that's a word, but he cannot be manipulated. He does what he wants, when he wants. He is God Almighty. As the book of Romans says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or, to paraphrase God's encounter with Job, When Job was questioning God, God said to him, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job said, I'll put my mouth over my hand and keep my mouth shut from now on. Who is your rock? Who is your foundation? God is. God is the greater God. And we put our trust and our reliance on him. What was Pharaoh's heart response? We read that here first in Chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And then after the miracle of turning the water in the Nile to blood, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. How about you? Where's your heart at? Where are you in terms of your reliance? Are you relying on the greater God, the one true God? Uh, Yes, it is true that if you rely on the one true God, that you can't predict what he's going to do. You can't manipulate what he's going to do, but he is the greater God. He is your rock. You are children of a greater God. And it is a blessing if God has given you that perspective. If God has opened your heart and opened your eyes and given you ears to hear and eyes to see the wonder and the reality that he is God Almighty. You know, he gave tangible signs to Pharaoh. He said, Pharaoh's going to ask for a sign? Fine, give him a sign. But it was ineffective. Because people don't respond to signs unless their heart is changed. And we see that in our text earlier today that Heath read, where the religious leaders in Jesus' day came to him and said, Show us a sign. And Jesus said, A sinful and an adulterous generation asks for a sign. No sign is going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah by which he meant his death and resurrection. Jesus would die and he would be 
in the, uh, would be buried for three days and he would rise again on the third day. That would be the sign. How did the religious leaders respond to the sign of Jonah? Didn't work. Sign in and of itself doesn't work. They didn't respond to Jesus' resurrection. And we have Jesus in Luke 16 giving a parable. The rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man goes to Hades. He's suffering torment after his death. And he says, I want to go back and I want to talk to my relatives. If somebody returns from the dead and warns them, they will listen. And the response was, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't respond if somebody comes back from the dead. How about you? Today we've been preaching Moses from the books of Moses about Almighty God. Has God worked in your heart? Has God warmed your heart, opened your eyes to Almighty God? There is a sign, and the sign is not a staff thrown down. It is, it is a piece of wood. It's a cross that's lifted up. And Jesus Christ was that sign in his life, his death on the cross. He died for you. He died for your sins, that he would take the punishment that you and I deserve for all of our sins, including our idolatry that we turn to and cling to instead of him. And then he was buried for three days and resurrected from the dead so that we might know life eternal. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So our greatest disaster in this life is death. And yet we know that our greater God has defeated death through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. I don't know if you saw this. Pat Boone's wife, uh, Shirley, passed away on Friday. And um, he uh, responded uh, to family and friends. He said, quick bulletin, change of address. Uh, Dear Shirley Boone doesn't dwell in Beverly Hills now. She, uh, she's just been warmly welcomed into a beautiful new mansion in heaven prepared specifically for her and her husband by Jesus himself, who said, who said that where I am, you may be also. Well, how does one have that perspective? One has that perspective because he knows the rock of his salvation, the one who has defeated death. And that's not only true for our eternal security, our eternal life, but that's true for our daily lives, as we live out our lives in space and time, as we deal with difficulty and disaster and crisis and trials, instead of turning to a lesser God that is no God at all, it's just something that God has given us as a gift, we instead turn our affection and our love and our faith to the Almighty God who is also our Father. There's an account of a ship that sailed uh, during the 1800s from England to uh, New York City. And in the midst of the, the transatlantic journey, uh, there was a, a severe storm in the middle of the night. And everybody uh, woke up and was fearing the worst. They got dressed. They went up uh, to the deck. And uh, a steward went through the ship and found a girl in her cabin and said to her, is your father on, on the deck? And she said, yes, he is. And then she turned and went back to sleep because her father was the ship's captain. 
and she had full trust in the ability of her father, and she had full trust in the fact that he cared deeply for her. We have an almighty God who is also our father. And so put your trust in him. Don't put your trust in some lesser God because you are children of a greater God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are our Father. We thank you that you care for us deeply. Um, And that is a wonderful reality, but we also know that you are a God who is powerful. You're all-powerful, and your care is matched by your ability to take care of us. And we know that you have promised that there will be difficulties